0: Thanks. Thank you, James. Oh, this is so nice. Like, I haven't been in person with people for 1.5 years. Um, it's always been a Zoom screen. So, you, thank you just for being you, being human, with faces to see. It's wonderful. Um, before I start, I, <laughs> I was in... I don't know if any of you in the session before this session, but it really wrecked me, that session, I was like, Lord, I need an altar call. <laughs> I need a moment with you. Uh, just all these leaders of, you know, that have been speaking at the conference and all the kind of suffering they've gone through and everything. And I just felt the Father say to me as I was sitting there listening to this incredible kind of wisdom, just that the Son is the radiance of the Father. And they like kept coming back to me. And then the Lord just laid on my heart that there's someone coming to your seminar that needs to hear that word. That Jesus Christ is the radiance of the Father. He's He's the emanation, like the full revelation of who the Father is. And I was like, okay, Lord, like why? <laughs> you gonna get any more information? Like, is there a name, you know, a person, maybe a hair color? <laughs> nope. Uh just and someone who's going to hear that word, and it's actually going to heal them. I don't know if that's physical, emotional, but maybe just take that away tonight, you know, just meditate on that verse from Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the Father, that He's the full emanation of the Godhead, and in that, God is going to do miracles. I really believe that. So just take that word away with you tonight. Meditate. I'm just obeying what I heard, I think I heard anyway from the Lord, um, but tonight, I suppose that's what I am talking about is the full radiance of God i 'm talking about someone who didn't know God, namely myself, coming into the knowledge of Jesus Christ and being completely bowled over by that radiance of the Father, that light that shines in the invisible space and so that war of loves that happens in our human hearts between God and the light and Satan and the darkness. It is the realest thing that I have ever come to know. And so tonight I wanna share just quickly my story of how I became a Christian as an anti-Christian gay activist 12 years ago in a pub in central Sydney. Now, before I share this story, I always share a personal hashtag <laughs> um, and that hashtag is Hashtag Fabulous Made Glorious. <laughs> now why do I share such a ridiculous hashtag? Because you know in Christian events often if there are LGBTQI people or same-sex attracted people present and they hear someone's going to share a testimony they often get anxiety because it's like what are they going to say? Are they going to be like super fundamentalist and like judge me? No, I'm hashtag Fabulous Made Glorious. Um, There's also another reason why I share that hashtag. And I think it's because in Christian spaces, we've often said horrible things like homosexuality is a sin. And then we've kind of run off and given people no other resources. Actually, God made us fabulous. The word in Hebrew is actually ornately beautiful. And that means our desires and our capacity to desire in the beginning, not now so much, uh, but in the beginning, that was originally a beautifully ornate gift. To experience depths of desire for intimacy is a wonderful thing. It's one of the things that marks humanity out as like God, as made in the likeness of God, that we have hearts that desire Beauty, and I think I was always told by the Christians, "You yeah, homosexuality is sin. And your desires are terrible, and they're all fallen. And now, like, you must become straight." <laughs> and that just never fit the reality of what I went through in my experiences as a gay man, and it pushed me away from Christianity. Um, but there was another message that was being screamed at me from the liberal media, and that was, love is 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 love. It's like, okay, but like, what is love? I don't know, but it's love. I was like, okay, but like, how do you define that? Like, could you give me an answer? Like, what is the substance of love? And it's like a feeling. I was like, great, so it's like oxytocin in your brain. Like, what is it? you're like, I don't know, but you just know it when it's there. And just watch Love Actually. Just... You know, just watch the next rom-com, as much as I love Notting Hill. Uh, like, you know, whatever it is, just go back there and you'll, you'll know what love is. Listen to your favorite music artist. You'll know what love is. And I was in, in a, a kind of a club in central Sydney where there was a the whole, like, intelligentsia of Sydney. You know, young political leaders who were going to lead the Labour Party in the future. You know, people who were experimenting with trans and gender and a gender representation. There were people who were really cool like me and had, like, Suby jeans on from Melbourne and, like, a great fringe, and we were, like, indie and different. (laughs) And kind of scrunched our faces up at all those middle-class, boring lawyers and doctors, and we're going to live life, and we're going to change the norms, and we're going to experiment with meaning. (laughs) And so that's the scene that I was in. And pretentiously, I had a Charlie Chaplin pen in my coat, and I took it out, and that night, this question was bugging me, and the question was, what is love? And so I handed this little journal out in this club with my Charlie Chaplin pen and received back this journal. And what I got back was just, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, no more, wow, wow. And I was like, great. And that literally was written on the paper like 20 times. I was so depressed. There was some really weird like European philosophical quotes that made no sense to me. Like a whole bunch of stuff. And I was just like, so that's it, guys. That's all you've got. You can't tell me what love is. And so I wasn't searching for God. I mean, God the one who made me with these desires and then punished me cruelly to hell because I had them and told me that I could never have romantic love. Like, what a horrible God. Why would I worship that God? I did nothing to choose to be gay. That God can't possibly be good. And actually, what's interesting about sexuality is it isn't first an ethical issue. It's actually first a suffering issue. It's actually first finding yourself in a place where it doesn't all add up and you can't really see how God could be good if he allowed that. For me to have desires and then to say, it's against the created order, I'm sorry, no boyfriend for you. And in our culture, the idol that we worship is romantic love. Aphrodite, Eros, you name the Pantheon, the number one God in our society is that God. It's not Yahweh. It's not the God that dies on the cross. And, you know, the Bible says, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life. And the Bible doesn't really say that romantic love is number one. Yes, it's a really intense manifestation of love. But Jesus says the greatest love you can have is to lay your life down for your friends. So actually, whilst romantic love is part of the picture, the center of love is not the giddy feeling you get when you see a hot person. As wonderful as that is, and we were created to see people as attractive, (laughs) it's to lay down your life for your friends. If that's true, then me being gay had a very different signification that I couldn't see. But because I'd signed up to the secular view of love, I couldn't see that different meaning for my sexuality. And Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite spiritual authors, he himself was same-sex attracted. He said, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way that they are part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well that proves once again that I'm a nobody. My dark side says, I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice of Jesus that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved is the core truth of our existence. Now, that's a big quote. <laughs> he, in this quote, gives us the greatest insight into our human problem when it comes to love. We have defined love around self-rejection. We haven't defined love in the terms of the means of God's embrace in the cross. When I was going around as a young gay man looking for love, I defined it through the self-rejection that I experienced because I was gay. And so I had to find a boyfriend. I had to have the partner in the Parisian apartment and adopt an orphan or I was not going to be whole. But that picture actually isn't what would make me whole. And I really do also want to poodle. You know, in that. I <laughs> love the poodles. My friend has a poodle. Um, I it. was at her house the other night. It's great. Um, and I've just lost my notes as well. Anyway, um, I think there's a lock on this. Anyway, doesn't matter. It's not my iPad. Sorry, I didn't have an iPad. So basically, I was at this point, you know, in my younger years before I was asking this question where I faced the problem of self-rejection. And I was in a park at the age of 14 with my then boyfriend who was Russian Orthodox and he used to wear a kind of amber cross with gold flecks in it, which was his baptismal cross. And so we were sitting in the park and he's like, you know, David, I just really wanna give you this cross as a token of my love for you, as a token of faith. And I was so angry with Christianity when he put that cross in my hand. I said, why would you give me? A symbol of our oppression as a gift. I mean, it's just ridiculous, you know, Vladimir, like your father is the greatest homophobe that I've ever met in my life. And look at the hell that he's made in your life because of stupid and ignoramus kind of faith that he has where he just blindly trusts this stupid national religion that just thinks gay people should go burn in hell. Why would you ever give me this cross? And so his response to that was, to just kiss me, to shut me up (laughs) and to kind of (laughs) diffuse the situation and as he's kissing me it did shut me up Um, (laughs) and this man pulled up on a motorbike and I remember smelling this like petrol smell behind me as I'm kind of kissing my boyfriend at the age of 14 in a park and I have this cross in my hand and he takes this large stone from a garden bed and as I'm kissing Vladimir, he throws it over, and it hits me right in the back, like a thud, and I'm like wincing in pain, and suddenly, for the first time, I was like, that's it. This cross in my hand is the cause of that homophobia. I need to dedicate my life to destroying Christianity because it is destroying the liberation of the LGBTQI community, and it's causing acts of that hatred towards me as a young 14 year old in a park, innocently kissing my boyfriend. And I was filled with just rage. I walked in the city one day with that boyfriend, and a man spat on us when we were holding hands. And I just remember this kind of these vile conservatives. How could you ever do that to another human being? And that religious ideology had to destroy it. But what was also going on in me was that I felt rejected by Christians. I felt pushed out and like scapegoated. And I was also wrestling with self-rejection myself as a gay man, like where do I fit? How do I find love? And so as I was in this kind of space. I suppose I thought that the solution, as Henry Nouwen says, to, to the problem was to reject self-rejection. And actually, you can't reject self-rejection because what it creates is a kind of angst that a lot of gay like, activists have that is built to protect you from another act of rejection but what i didn't realize in that kind of you know activist mentality was i was still controlled by that self rejection even if i was trying to reject it i needed jesus to come in and love me in a way no other human being ever could thank you and in that i could then be freed and that's what happened in my life And it starts, actually, interestingly, with me going to a psychic. And so at the age of 16, I end up at this psychic. Her name was Rosemary. She had, you know, stereotypical kind of lavender velvet jacket and the kind of sandalwood incense and you know, all of it was going on and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna find about my future boyfriend and like my theater career and you know, or whatever I was <laughs> aiming for at that age. And very stereotypically gay things. Um, and I walk into this psychics, yeah, kind of bureau and she re- starts reading my tarot cards and she goes through my tarot cards and in the middle of it she says, like this. And she's like, starts freaking out. I'm like, okay, Rosemary, everything okay? She's like, no, no, David, oh my gosh. No, 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 like what this means. It's like exactly what you want in like one of those readings. It's like, tell me, (laughs) like what might it be? And here you are, this like young atheist is going to a psychic. That doesn't really add up really. If you go to Washington DC, they have the most psychics in America. It's the most atheistic place in America. So really there's no such thing as pure atheism. But anyway, so I was there and she's, she says to me, well, um, what this means is that you're a child of the light. You're destined to be with Jesus, the greatest mediator in the spiritual realms. I was like, excuse me, like, do you know who I am? Like, I am David Bennett and mark my words, I will never become a Christian. <laughs> and I stormed out of the psychic's office, went to the you know place where I had a lovely soy, latte, soy chai latte beforehand <laughs> where my token feminist friend was waiting for me and I just went on a rant about how I would never become a Christian and this psychic is a bogus evangelist who's using the psychic cover to convert people to Christianity. The irony is that I'm standing in front of you today as an evangelist. Um, And so she wasn't an undercover evangelist because I sent my friend back to check and there was nothing about Jesus in her reading. But you see there that God was trying to reach me. God was trying to contradict the voice of self-rejection and say, I love you, David. And he put things in my life like that to show me that he really was always pursuing me. And actually, the reality is the center of sin is not just rebellion from God. That's a symptom. The center of sin is self-rejection. It's the voice that says, God could never love me. I am unlovable. And the most impossible thing about us as human beings is our capacity to receive God's love. That is the greatest miracle of Christianity. It isn't the radiance of God, you know, (laughs) the scripture with the healing, as wonderful as that is, and it is an expression of that love. The actual greatest miracle is that when we finally understand and know as we are fully known. That is what Christianity is essentially about, is the knowledge of God's love. But again, in this war of loves, the LGBTQI plus thing was being used to blind me from that love, even with these kind of crazy signs of God's love for me. So I end up, four years later, the Christmas lunch table, 2008, and I'm there with my uncle, who's a fundamentalist Pentecostal, where they try to convert gay people to straight, and they brainwash you with a feeling of worship so that you give lots of money, and then they steal it from you and use it to buy big cars. <laughs> this is what I thought Pentecostalism was. And There's some, sometimes some fair kind of stereotypes in there. Um, anyway, so I, I'm at this lunch table, and there is my uncle, and I'm ready to intellectually defeat him because I'd studied postmodern philosophy and I knew how to defeat him. And so he mentions God and I just said, there absolutely is, there is no absolute truth. You can't talk about God. You can't even use language to describe God, let alone like, this is ridiculous. Like, do you not realize the damage this idea is doing to people? My mother has adopted your stupid delusion and I'm a real person, like her real gay son standing in front of her saying, don't believe in this delusion that will cause you to condemn all these LGBTQI plus people. (laughs) Make your choice. And my mother actually said, I'm not gonna make that choice because I think it's a false choice and I don't have to make it. And I don't think the church should have to make that choice. There's another way through where we can retain truth and grace, where the Bible is upheld, but the experience of being gay is listened to and taken seriously. Anyway, that's a side point. So I'm there and I, I go on this huge like rampage at my uncle. And he just turns around to me nonchalantly and says, you know, David, you say there's no absolute truth. That's an absolute truth. And you just communicated that with language. So you just doubly contradicted yourself. And I just remember this moment of rage and then also of pleasure because I kind of loved his response. It made intellectual sense. And I think he then said one thing that was so important to me. He said, truth isn't a concept in my head. Again, something that's gonna kind of reject me. Truth is a person. And I don't know that person perfectly. I don't have all the answers, but I do know he's the truth. And he pointed me to Jesus. And I stormed theatrically out of the room in wonderful gay fashion. And I never wanted to speak to him again. And he was in the car with my aunt, and he said to my aunt, you know, um, I actually see the Holy Spirit over David, and I think he's gonna become a Christian in three months time. You fast forward three months later, and I'm in a pub in the gay quarter of Sydney, and there's this filmmaker from my university, and she comes, she comes up to me. And like, this is right near Oxford Street, if any of you know Sydney. So it's right in the smack bang in the middle of the gay world. And it was just so amazing that God, you know, three months later, as my uncle said, I see David's going to become a Christian in three months time. There I am in this pub. Anyway, we get into a conversation. I said, you got your film into the largest short film competition in the world. Like, I really want to know how. And she said, well, it was God. And I was like, oh, I'm surrounded by these Christians. Just, you know, (laughs) like. I'm like, okay, aha, uh-huh, well, that's really good for you. That's your truth. Oh, I'm so good. That's great. But like, no, like, I'm gay. I'm fine. Like, I've read what the Bible says. I think, you know, we can just move on now. Like, she's like, well, no, but what do you think? I said, well, you know, I'm sure Jesus, Jesus is what the greatest human that probably ever lived, but that he's God, is human invented religion. And, you know, I think we just leave it there. Thank you so much. I'm gay, gay, gay. Self-rejection, you know? And she's like, well, okay, I can understand that's really difficult, but like, like, have you experienced the love of God? I was like, what? That's, sorry? She's <laughs> like, well, you can't really understand all of that until you've experienced love of God. Like, that's all just, the, like, that's secondary. Like, the main thing is that you know that for yourself. Like, do you want to experience that? Like, I could just And then she starts to, like, manifest in the spirit. (laughs) I've never seen anything like this. She's like, whoa, like this. Oh, whoa, like, oh, my gosh, God loves you so much. And she's, like, looking at me with these, like, eyes of love. This complete stranger. (laughs) And I'm like, she's like, would you mind if I just pray for you? And I was like, um get away from this crazy fundamentalist. she is nuts, like, run out of this pub now. And it's like, this other voice is like, oh, I like experiences. Like, I have to be like an honest agnostic, like, you know, the kind of psychic style <laughs> logic. And so I said, all right, you can pray for me, but like, hon, I don't think anything is gonna happen, so good luck. <laughs> so she kind lays hands on me and she starts praying like, the Christian prayer is, in the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, I just command every darkness to leave this man. Oh, Lord, he is loved by you. And I'm just like, Ooh, okay. <laughs> We're either in the crazy asylum or, you know. <laughs> and as she's praying for me, I suddenly start to feel this kind of like as if time starts stopping. You know, in the Bible, there's Kronos and Kairos time. Kronos is the tick, tick, tick time. And Kairos is the everything just stopped time <laughs> and it was a kairos moment so intensely and like i just felt like this weird wind like over my head and it was like whoosh, like this and i'm like what is that like, <laughs> like and then as she's praying for me it's like getting more and more intense and i just it's like someone who t- took a vial of oil and poured it over my head and this like power went all through my legs and i'm like this is Bible stuff is real, oh no, like, I hope this doesn't mean that the, like, Christian God is true, you know, like, because again, it was just such a conflict for me, and as she's praying, I heard this voice say, do you want me? Do you want me? Do you want me? I'm like hello <laughs> creative of <in> the universe <laughs> I don't really talk to very much <laughs> you know hotline like, to heaven like I mean it was it, yeah some of the things I said in my mind but anyway and so um, I said well um so y- yes if you're yes if you're real like <laughs> you know, And as I'm saying yes, there's 2 Corinthians 3 where it says, you know, the veil is over their hearts. God has blinded them. They cannot see. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and the veil is lifted. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit broke into me. And went right into the deepest part of my whole being. I didn't even know that existed. But at that place was the seat of all my desires. Everything I ever had wanted. Like the whole energy of what I was as a human being. And he touched that deepest point, And he made his residence there. And I felt this like whew, breath enter me. And I was like... Madeline, I'm breathing without breathing. What's happening to me? She's like, you're being born again. Hallelujah. And I was like, I am not a right-wing American Republican. Like, hell no. She's like, well, that's not what that means. I was like, we can talk about this later. (laughs) She's like, no, it means like you're connected to the Holy Spirit. I was like, great. Okay, I don't really understand what that means, but let's keep praying. And so she keeps praying for me. And, like, the voice comes back again. And I, you have to understand, I'm an atheist. Like, I'm trained to think that this is wish fulfillment. Like, I'm trained to question every spiritual experience as just some abstraction of our, like, desire for some delusion to exist. And here is this voice it's just undeniably speaking to me. And I'm like, where is this coming from? <laughs> like... And I, know that I knew the difference because I'd been a Buddhist and a Wiccan witch for six months and a Reformed Jew for a week. Um, you know, I'd gone through it all. Um, anyway, so, so this voice says to me, straight up, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Now, when I think about this question, the thing that saddens me is no Christian ever really asked me that question. God had to come in and say it to me directly. That's the question we should be asking people, because actually a lot of people are like, you know what, yeah, I'm willing. (laughs) Like... How do I do it? I just don't want that homophobia. I just don't want to be rejected again. I just don't want the pain of all of you moralizing me and trying to work out what you think about sexuality on top of me so that I'm kind of like crushed into a corner and might just explode and commit suicide, which is what some people have done. I mean, Christians, we need to wake up. Like, we have damaged that community because we haven't lived in that love. We haven't really offered it because we don't know it ourselves, And I think God asked me this question and gave me this experience as a message to the church that we have to come from a place of love. And that's not love that compromises the truth, but it's actually love, where we would lay down our lives for this community. Where is that love? Why is that love not there? Why did I have to encounter God in a pub when I'd gone to a Christian school my whole life? Why? That's one side of how I feel about that question. (laughs) But the other side is, what an amazing God. He's not the God that condescends us morally and puts a law over us and expects us to live perfectly and have it all together. He's the God that says, I'm going to come into a gay pub in the center of Sydney in 2009 and save David Bennett, the least likely person to get saved. That's the real God. That's the God of Acts 8 that saved the Ethiopian eunuch. That everyone thought was a complete like, reject <laughs> and didn't belong in the church, didn't belong in Israel, couldn't enter the holy presence of God in the temple. And he makes him the father of a whole nation, someone who can't even have children. This is the kingdom of God happening in this pub. This is what the church is supposed to be formed around, is this God of love that just breaks in <laughs> even when we failed. And I'm preaching to myself as much as to you because I have days where I get stuck with the truth and I let the truth be separate from love and I don't join them together and it does so much damage. So that's my rant. (laughs) And I am in this war of loves. I am being torn between two kingdoms of light and dark. And finally, like after this crazy exp- voices in my head telling me what I should do, I just say yes. I was like, I don't want darkness in my life. I want light, and whatever this is, is a light, and I'm choosing it. And God had lifted the veil. And as I said yes, <clears throat> the most incredible presence fell upon me, and I started to weep and weep and weep and weep. And weep healing after years and years of self-rejection, of rejection from the church, of silence from Christians. And God poured His love out in my life, and I have never been the same, even through this pandemic, even through all of the failures of the church with this question, liberal and conservative. That love has remained And it's the only thing at points that I've been able to hold on to in my ministry because I have been so underwhelmed by the response that we have had as the church. I cannot tell you how much pain I carry around in my body knowing that there are people who are rejected by us and haven't been given the truth. And yes, some people have and they've walked away and that's different. But I'm talking about the thousands of David Bennetts out there that are desperately waiting for someone to say, have you experienced the love of God? Not do you know what our moral system is and whether you fit into it or not, and then we might maybe give you a little bit of love if you're a good boy. No, this God that runs after the prodigal, that's the God that I encountered in that pub. And I went home and my mum was waiting up and obviously there was conflict between us about faith And she'd added her faith to the prophetic word that my uncle had given. And it was three months after, March 25th, there she was after the Christmas lunch conversation with my uncle and the prophecy that he gave that I would be saved in three months time. It was exactly three months after my conversation with my uncle. I had no idea about this, of course, because I wasn't in the Christian loop. (laughs) And I walk in and I'm like, I'm going to have to eat my words. Like, Felicia, Shaniqua, I have, like, treated my mother like you do not treat your mother. (laughs) I had told her, this is where you're going to go and you're going to stay there. So, (laughs) because you became a Christian and that's called betrayal and that triggered my rejection problem. And this is what we have to understand about this question. It's not just about ethics Yes, I'm celibate, yes, I don't have gay sex, yes, I have given up gay relationships, yes, 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 yes. If that's the first question you ask yourself, you have failed, (laughs) you have not understood. It is about suffering first, it's about humanity, it's about people that are facing a mystery that you cannot comprehend how hard it is sometimes, why some people are gay. Like, we think we can explain it, and the Bible, by the way, gives way better resources than the secular world, like science cannot explain why you're gay. Very well. There's not really very, like, there's not conclusive evidence. But the Bible says there's a concomitant mix of creation fall, and it's kind of, this has meant some people have a difference of embodiment that produces a desire towards the same sex. Anyway, rant finished. But <laughs> there I am with my mom, and I'm going to have to eat my words. And I just said, Mom, I'm, actually, I've, yeah, through so, um, and, I think I've yeah, so just, um, oh. <laughs> I think I've become a, become a Christian, I just think I became a Christian, hallelujah, I knew he was the God of the impossible. That if he saved you, well, David, I knew, I know he's the God of the impossible because I made a covenant with him. That if he saved you, well, I know he's the God of impossible because, David, you're impossible to save. And my mother's an opera singer, so there's always a lot of pathos in the communication. Um, <laughs> I might have inherited a little bit from her. So, And there's this amazing moment with my mother. And then she said, but we knew this was going to happen because your uncle had a prophetic word that three months before you got saved, you know, when you had that debate with him in the Christmas lunch, well, like he said, you get saved in three months time and it's happened. And I like walked up the stairs that night, just floating like, what has happened? My mother already knew this was going to happen <laughs> through God. <laughs> like, this divine conspiracy In spite of all the failures and my own failures to understand that I was loved by God, God had reached in and saved me out of the pit. And I went to the film competition of this girl and I looked up at a star and I said, God, I can't just have this mystical experience. I need you to give me a rational sign because I'm a gay activist. Like, it doesn't make sense. I've read Romans, (laughs) I've read 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, I I don't know how this is gonna work because I want a romantic relationship and that's just gotta be it. Like, so show up and give me a rational response because I can't cope with this. And so (laughs) I run down to the red carpet. She wins the whole film competition. And she turns around to me And she says, David, all night God's been bugging me to tell you that He exists, and you just need to know that. And I was like, oh my gosh, there it is. That's it. I'm a Christian. And I floated home that night on the train, and I just realized that I had become a new creation, and that the old had passed away, and the new had come. And I have lived my life from that point, not wanting to compromise the new creation that God has made me, not wanting to put my gay identity above my faith, but really make sure that my gay identity was relativized and demoted under the Lordship of Jesus. So that doesn't mean that the fact I'm attracted to the same sex, it hasn't changed, but it's been demoted under Jesus. It serves Jesus now and no other name. And that's the true path that God wants to take LGBTQI plus and actually heterosexual people even more (laughs) on. That's the choice that I wasn't given. I had to do that, thanks to the fact that I was gay. Whereas a lot of heterosexuals get away with worshipping romantic love and putting it on a pedestal and pretending like it's a happy picture white picket fence marriage, and they can go to their friends. Look, I'm so moral and wonderful. You can all just love me now. But they're still controlled by self-rejection. The love of God has not come in and changed them from the out, inside out. But because of the complexity of being gay, I was saved from that self-rejection. That love removed that, and I now know that, like, my identity is first as a Christian, but, and that means that I'm, I've given that to God in celibacy, but I'm still gay. And that still matters to God, it's still the thing actually that he's using to glorify himself. And in Isaiah 56, it says, to the eunuchs who obey my commands and live according to my Sabbath, so I'm not compromising the truth, I'm not saying marriage isn't between a man and a woman, I'm not, but I never chose to be gay and that's not going to be resolved until the resurrection. I'm not going to have a magic wand put over me and suddenly I will be straight. And actually, my celibate gay friend, he was in a similar position to me. And one day, God gave him an attraction for a woman, and they got married. And it was an amazing story. And I, when I first heard it, I was like, Are you serious? <laughs> Come on, Peter. Like, <laughs> that's a bit weird. <laughs> like, you're with a woman? He's like, Yeah. And I have three kids. I'm like, Wow. You know, like, this is how did that happen? And he said to me, You know, it doesn't really matter what your attractions are. I only needed one attraction to one woman. And yeah, I'm still attracted to men, but it makes no real difference. I'm also attracted to my partner. And some days I'm more attracted to her than to men, but it doesn't really matter because whether it was women that I'm more attracted to, I'm called to deny that and to love her and to be in that covenant with her. And of course, I think it's harder for people that are gay to be in a situation like that because it needs more pastoral investment. It needs a really serious moment of discernment before you make a huge decision like that to be with someone of the opposite sex. And it is not an easy solution. And most gay people in the church end up being celibate because of how complex that is. So I'm not saying it's just you're gay, so therefore you're celibate. It's a journey. It's difficult. It's going to, maybe you make, might make some wrong choices, but Jesus will hold you and he'll direct you. And you might stray down different paths, but he's going to get you to the righteous path, to the straight path, ironically. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that's my message tonight is it really is about knowing the love of God, that that is the center point of how we process and get through the many mysterious things in our lives, not just being LGBTQI+. plus. It could be we had our parent died when we were young. It could be that we've experienced horrific racism. It's that we've been discriminated against because of our gender. It's because we experienced gender dysphoria. All of these questions, the solution is to come back to making the love of God the center and then being able to be empowered to live out biblical truth from there with the support and love of the church together going forward bearing one another's burdens, cross-bearing Christians that are profound and have a different way of seeing human flourishing to the flatline, boring, superficial way that our society sees human flourishing. And people being so attracted to that body of believers who have at the heart the righteousness of God, have become the righteousness of God, and the world can see it in flesh and is like For those that God has given eyes to see and ears to hear will be attracted and transformed and be made part of that big expanding body and army of people. And I'm but one person that that's happened to. And I believe there is going to be a move of God (laughs) where we will start living in the cross so much more profoundly than we ever have. We're going to start living in the resurrection power of Jesus because we're giving up great things. If you want to know how to love the LGBTQI plus community, do you want to know what it is? live a life of sacrifice that is commensurate with what it would take for an LGBTQI plus person to live that righteousness out. If that's, that's loving the, the LGBTQI plus community, that is loving it. Changing the doctrine of gay marriage is not loving them. It's not loving us because it's not giving us what's true. It's giving us a lie and saying, live in it. God has made it clear in his word what marriage is and actually... I get to experience what marriage points to as a celibate gay Christian. I'm not excluded because I don't have marriage. Marriage is an earthly good, it's a wonderful thing if God calls you to it, but it's not the center. The center is the wedding feast of the lamb and the bride. And the people that represent that often most intensely aren't even married people, they're celibate people that are in love with Jesus and are privileging that future reality in the now. And so once I had that all reconfigured after this experience through three years of really intense sanctification, I finally saw in a moment that as Isaiah 56 says, he will give me a name better than sons and daughters, a name that shall not be cut off, an eternal name. And that's the promise, whatever we lack, we get in an even greater measure. And that's my testimony of becoming a celibate Christian, of journeying through a war of loves, of this war of loves that we face, and being delivered from the self-rejection that is at the heart of sin, and finally knowing the true love and acceptance of God that then transformed me and moved me into gospel obedience. So that's what I wanted to share with you tonight. There's so much more to say, but I hope this has blessed you guys, letting me rant a little bit at you (laughs) from this. And, you know, please charitable to me this is a very big topic and there may have been things in what I've said that have challenged you or annoyed you or helped you or encouraged you thank you just for the charity in listening to me and my perspective and my story I know there's many other stories in this room of who you that I would also <laughs> love to hear and will know in eternity but thank you for giving me the space to share mine um, yeah and I'd love to just open up quickly I don't know if we have time. Um, uh, just for some questions, maybe one or two. Yeah, I've got three or four
1: minutes. (laughs) Hi, thanks. Thanks for that. That was was really good. I heard you two years ago as well, and it's great to hear it again and it, there's a lot of learning points from church uh, that churches need to take from your testimony. Um, a few months ago, I, lo- I looked up your book on Amazon uh, just to remind myself about it, and I looked at some of the comments. Most of them are amazing, and it's like four and a half stars on, on Amazon if everyone wants to buy it. You know, I just plug it for them. Um, but there, there was one interesting comment from someone from the LGBT, B, you know, Q plus community, and it was a lady called Kathy Baldock, I don't know if you've heard about her. So, yeah, I just want to get behind their their way of thinking, and you might be able to help me with it. Um, So she's obviously looking at history and persecution, and she's obviously been hurt, and she's trying to be on the fence between the Bible and honouring Jesus and... um, (laughs) looking at history and looking at the love in the same-sex relationship she sees, so she's, she's trying to tread that narrow, that middle path, not narrow path, sorry, that's the wrong language to use. So, she's saying, she's disagreeing with interpretations of Paul, basically, so while there is general understanding of homosexual acts in the broader, I'm reading, I'm reading directly from her comment now. Acts in the broader Greco-Roman literature of the time as predominantly. let's skip on. Um, I lost my place, sorry. Here you go. No, 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 she's disagreeing with your way of interpreting things. Every, ex- and biblical ex- way of interpreting things, every example of same sex in ancient cultures and literature had at its center profound, profound age and or power differential. Paul was not referring to LGBTQ relationships as we know them today. Do you have any comment or how we're supposed to engage with those sort of people without being too full on and angry and the sort of Christians that didn't help you?
0: Thank you for such a thoughtful question. Um, Cathy Baldock, obviously I would love to meet one day and talk to you and And I I respect that she wants to challenge me because she disagrees. There's so many levels to that question, but I would say the first one is a bit of an academic response, (laughs) and I'll go personal in a secondary way. First one is that if you look at Preston Sprinkle's work in Center for uh, Sexuality and Identity online, you'll see that he actually has evidence from the ancient world of gay marriages or gay unions that were totally not about a power differential. They weren't about, you know, ancient Greek pederasty. Actually, ancient Greek pederasty was something that had also fallen out of vogue at various points in the um, Greco-Roman ancient So there was times where it was intensely practiced and times where it wasn't. And actually, the symposium by Plato, actually, (laughs) at the beginning anyway, um, elevates gay love between two loving, consensual, you know, men and says this is the most spiritual love you can ever have. So actually, in the ancient world, there was a really strong view that gay love could be this mutually enhancing kind of loving thing. And you have a bust from Rome of two women with their hands, like, over each other, which was a sign of being united in marriage in ancient Rome. So actually, there's archaeological evidence that that's not really true, <laughs> what Kathy's saying. The other thing that she mentions is the word arsene Sorry, this is really academic. <laughs> um, when you go back to the Old Testament Septuagintal translation of the original Masoretic or Hebrew text, in the Hebrew text, it's mishav, mishav zakur, which means man, male, bed. <laughs> if you like, literally just translate male better, either way, and then if you transliterate that into Greek, it's actually tai. And then Paul, because he's trying to translate the Jewish sexual ethic to the Gentiles and saying it hasn't changed, and he makes it clear throughout the New Testament, including in the Jerusalem Council, when they rule, what should we do with these new Gentile converts? Should we make them be circumcised? No, <laughs> but they must abstain from sexual immorality. That's referring to the fact that the code or the kind of cultural understanding of sexual immorality was right and continued and wasn't really changed. Whereas food laws and other things were changed because they were apocalyptically relativized around the grace that had come through the Messiah, but the sexual immorality piece hadn't changed. The created order still needs to be respected, but the grace has come to bring people in who don't easily accord in their desires with the created order including gay people. So the wonderful thing about 1 Corinthians 6-9 is it is a mark of God's inclusivity without compromising the Jewish ethic, the porneia problem um, sexual immorality, which included abstaining from homosexual activity. So it was very clear in first century Jewish ethics that gay sex was out of bounds, including consensual, loving gay sex. Um, and so that's why... I still hold to the traditional ethic, and I would just respectfully disagree with Kathy um, in her analysis of things. I really don't think, though, at the same time, it's just an academic game. I really think it's about God's fearing the Lord and putting Him above our human desire for something to be true. Like, if we're saying God has to accept same-sex relationships to be good, then we're never going to be able to see what the Scriptures say. We have to get to a point where we'd be willing to give them up, which was where I was able to get to, which wasn't easy. (laughs) And I'm not putting that over people in a way that doesn't also repress us or put us in a moral bind that's unhealthy and lead us into repressive celibacy, which I think can be the defect of my view, is that it can be used as a way of putting people under celibacy rather than giving them a healthy form of self-denial that is in the kind of discipleship of Jesus. Such a long answer. hope <laughs> that helps. But I would just respectfully disagree with her and think that's not really right, what she's saying. Um, but thank you. That's such a good question. I wish I had more time. I think I might have to close I actually have dinner with some friends so I won't be able to take your questions but I will be around creation fest tomorrow so come say hi and thank you so much for listening it's
1: been a real pleasure thanks